What is salvation? You might think you know, but we'll be discussing that a little bit in today's podcast episode, along with the issue of what is the mystery that God has kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed in Jesus Christ. All this we're discussing in today's podcast study of Ephesians 1, 9-13. I'm Jeremy Myers, and this is the Redeeming God Podcast. Hey, so thanks for uh, jo- uh, so much for joining me. As I said, we'll be looking at Ephesians 1, 9 through 13 today. Yes, you heard that right. Covering multiple verses today, making some progress in Ephesians 1. Uh, partly that's because these texts sort of repeat a lot of what Paul has already talked about in Ephesians 1. He's summarizing it. So I'm going to move through these texts fairly quickly. We will be discussing this mystery, though, that he refers to in verse 9. And also discussing this word salvation in uh, verse 13, along with some brief comments on the text in between those two bookend verses. Along with that, we'll be looking at the current events, what's going on in the Middle East right now between Israel and Palestine, taking a brief break from my sort of survey of the book by Vadi Balcom, Fault Lines. Uh, We'll just be talking about Israel and Palestine and answering also a question from a listener about Jesus' statement from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All that is in today's study, today's podcast of the Redeeming God podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive right in. So if you've been paying attention to the news this week, you know that there is turmoil in the Middle East, as there so often has been over the last several thousand years. Seems there's always problems over there, and Scripture says that is the case. Because of Isaac and Ishmael, way back at the beginning of the of biblical history, and you know what's happening. So we have this Hamas, this Palestinian terrorist organization, and they have recently started launching rockets into Israel this last week. And of course, Israel, in response, started shooting the rockets down and also returning fire. It's uh, and then there've been casualties as a result of this. So it's it's a little bit. I mean, violence of this sort is never. It's never good, but it's also shocking to watch how some people in Christianity, some people in the church, and especially some of our politicians in D.C. and other state and local authorities, have responded to these events, and also what we see on the news. What is shocking is, even though Hamas started this, uh, it's shocking to see that rather than condemning Hamas for launching these rockets in the first place, many are actually condemning Israel for defending themselves, for retaliating, or, you know, they're saying you're taking it too far, retaliation too far, whatever the case may be. And uh, so it's, 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 it's strange to see how this plays out. And I, I laughed a little bit. It's not, it's not a joking matter, but I did laugh a little bit at the uh, satirical headline from the Babylon Bee. If you don't follow Babylon Bee on any social media accounts that you might be on, you really should. Uh, it's it's satire. If you don't know that Babylon B is satire, then uh, you you probably will scratch your head at some of their headlines. But it's a satirical site, and that makes it sometimes quite insightful. Anyway, they had a recent uh, satirical headline which read this. Here's here's what the title was: Tensions rise in the Middle East as one side wants to kill Jews, and the other side are Jews who don't want to die. And neither will compromise. 
<laughs> right? I mean, where's the compromise? Everybody's saying, oh, can't they just compromise? Well, where is the compromise? The headline is, is satire, but it's also truthful because it's almost exactly right. Uh, the, the Hamas, one of their stated goals, okay, this is not hidden, it's public, their stated goals is to destroy Israel. Uh, to, to, to kill Israelites, to kill the Jews, to destroy them, to wipe them off the map. Uh, whereas the Jews, they just want to live. They don't want to be destroyed. And where is their compromise in that? Can they compromise? No, uh, there is no compromise in that sort of situation. So, uh, in my opinion, the Israelites under this situation have no other choice as a government than to defend themselves. Oh, sure, they could choose to not defend themselves, uh, like Jesus on the cross, he didn't defend himself. I've heard that argument. Well, sure, uh, and, and Jesus died. So Israel, and of course, that was his plan and purpose. That's what he wanted to do. Israel could choose to not defend themselves, but of course, that would lead to them being obliterated off the map. So um, is that something that you would say is what you would force upon any government, any nation on earth? I don't know what nation you're off, you're part of. I'm part of the United States, but if we had an enemy who would attack us, I hope we would defend ourselves because it would be defending the lives of the people who live here. That's one of the things a government is supposed to do, and Israel has that right to do that, and as they should. But of course, it's interesting to watch some of the the news and the politicians. You know, why is Israel so mean in attacking the Palestinians? Why are they so violent? Right. <laughs> um, and, and, and so my stance on this is that Israel has the right to defend itself, and I, I support Israel. Uh, I, I don't want people of either side to die. I oppose all violence, but I do believe there is a national right for governments and nations to defend themselves against violence. Okay, now here's the problem, though. People are saying, well, Hamas didn't start this. They're only—they uh, were provoked, all right? That, that's, that's sort of the line here. So we, it's okay for nations to defend themselves, but Hamas, the Palestinians, were provoked by Israel, and so really it's them defending themselves from Israel, and Israel is escalating the violence. Okay, well, uh, what did Israel do to provoke Hamas? And you, you start digging into this and reading and listening to what they say, and basically what Israel did to promote Hamas is— defend themselves. Okay, Hamas has been, again, this is their stated, in their stated goals and purposes of the Hamas organization, is to take land from Israel so that from that land from Israel, they can launch more attacks on Israel and take more land until eventually they destroy Israel as a nation. Okay, and so if that's Hamas's stated goals, uh, then, then anytime Israel defends themselves from these attacks, is that is that provoking? Uh, is it provoking Hamas for for Israel to want to keep their land and their citizens alive? I don't think so. I read one article this last week in which a liberal journalist said that uh, the, this per, this Israel provoking Hamas started way back, you know, starting in 1948 when Israel became a nation, of course. But then, uh, especially, this is what this journalist said in 1967 during the Six-Day War, when, according to the journalist, Israel stole land from the Palestinians and never gave it back. Well, okay, you go back and look at what actually happened in 1967 during the Six-Day War. Many of the surrounding Arab nations uh, decided that they wanted to wipe Israel off the map. They did not want Jews in the Middle East, and so they decided to attack and obliterate Israel. In preparation for that attack, they told all of the Arab refugees, all of the Arab people who were living in and around Israel to leave, 
to temporarily leave so that when the attack came, they wouldn't be they wouldn't accidentally uh, be, be killed, either by the Arabs or by Israel. Obviously, they wanted to save Arab lives. Fine. So the, the Arabs left, and rather than obliterate Israel, Israel actually won that battle, the, the 1967 Six-Day War. Many people consider it a, a sort of a modern-day miracle in the sense that they were, not a, they were not obliterated by all these nations attacking them, all these surrounding nations attacking them. And of course, Israel won that war, and uh, so they also took the land that had been left behind when the Arabs left. And also, that's sort of the, the rules of warfare a little bit, I suppose, uh, but also it was a defensive move. Israel knew that if they just simply gave this land back, uh, that it would just be used to launch more attacks on Israel. And so uh, they're using it as a bit of a buffer of sorts. Uh, so so did, did Israel steal the land from the Palestinians? Well, no, the Palestinians left and Israel came in as part of the war and defended their land, defended themselves. And of course, now they have it. So when they talk about the occupied territory, uh, Israel is occupying the land. Well, you have to know some of the backstory there. They're not occupying it. They did not illegally take the land. They did not, they're not occupying Palestinian territory. Israel defended herself and continues to do so and against Hamas. And Hamas is trying to get the land back so that they can continue attack and destroy Israel. It's a very difficult situation, in a sense, but uh, I still defend Israel and her right to defend herself against people who want to destroy her. That is not a crime. Okay, the other criticism I sometimes hear from various politicians and journalists is that Israel shouldn't exist because they are an apartheid state. You know what an apartheid state is. It was very famous in South Africa, where basically uh, the whites and the blacks in South Africa were kept completely apart. Apartheid state, separate, where there were two separate governments and the blacks weren't allowed to have a voice or weren't allowed to participate. It was a modern-day form of segregation, which is bad. It was evil. I agree with that. That should not be. So what's happening is certain politicians like the the four uh, members of the squad in Congress, you might have heard about them, they're saying that Israel is a racist country, they, they dehumanize the Arab citizens of Israel, they keep Arabs from, from being elected to positions of power, from having a voice in, in their government, and it's an apartheid state, therefore they are an illegitimate government and they should be destroyed. <laughs> well, this, this is a, a bald-faced lie, all right? Israel is a democracy. That's their form of government. Uh, and they're the only democracy in the Middle East. And guess what? Israel affords, gives its Arab citizens full rights, just like everybody else. Arab Israelis are full participants in Israeli society. They vote in elections along with everybody else. There are Arab parties, Arab people in parliament, the Israeli parliament. Uh, there are Arab justices in the Israeli Supreme Court. Uh, about 20% of, of doctors in Israel uh, and about half of the pharmacists, about 50% of the pharmacists are Arabs. And people say, oh, well, 20%, that's not very much. There should be more. Well, look, <laughs> uh, about 20% of the Israeli population is Arab. So if 20% are doctors, then that's exactly what you would expect. 20% representation is exactly what you would expect in a 20% population. Now, okay, so that's Israel. What about the Palestinian countries, the Arab countries that surround Israel? Guess what? Not a single democratic government among them. And in fact, 
There are Jews and Christians who do live in some of these other Arab countries that surround Israel, and do they get representation? No. Do they have a voice? No. Do they get treated with equality and respect? No. Okay, so if we're going to condemn apartheid states in the Middle East, Israel is the only one who's not apartheid. It's the, all the others that are. And so if, if the members of the squad want to condemn apartheid states, Israel is the only one they should not be condemning. Okay, so all of these arguments about Israel not having a right to defend herself is just utter nonsense. All of this is to say, we're coming to the end of this, I stand by Israel and her right to defend herself against attacks. I condemn the violent and unprovoked attacks by Hamas upon the Israeli people. Okay? It should also be pointed out, by the way, that it's very interesting this is happening under Biden. I guarantee this would not have happened if Trump had been reelected, if Trump was still in office. Okay? Uh, during Trump's four years, there was almost unparalleled peace in the Middle East. There was, uh, partly because of his foreign policy and his strong stance on protecting Israel. It was so ironic, many in the media saying Trump is an anti-Semitic. <laughs> That's only, only people who said that are either lying to you or stupid uh, or ignorant because they simply do not know Trump and his family and his foreign policy positions. Okay, so uh, the, the, the death and the violence occurring in Middle East, it... it needs to be laid, it can be laid squarely on Biden's weak and incoherent foreign policy. And I hope that all Christians can unite together to condemn the violence that's occurring in the Middle East, uh, to call for Hamas to stop attacking Israel, and especially pray for God to intervene. Uh, pray for the peace of Israel as we are called to do. Okay? So, with that in mind, let's move on to a letter from our listeners. You've got mail, baby. Yeah. So I received a question recently from a reader named Joan Vitale. I hope I'm saying your name right, Joan. And here's what she wrote. I have a question regarding the statement, Jesus, uh, regarding Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, common beliefs are that God turned away from Jesus at the moment he took upon the sins of the world. I am not convinced this is so. Why? Because God never leaves us nor forsakes us. Why would he forsake his only son? Instead, I feel that Jesus did not become sin for us, but rather he became the sacrifice for our sins, just as the Old Testament sacrifices did not take away people's sins, but instead were sacrificially offered. And that is why Jesus is also known as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What are your beliefs on this? Okay, that's a fantastic question, Joan. I really thank you for submitting that. And, I, and you know what? I really like your thinking on this. I'm glad that you've made this connection between this statement about God never leaving us or forsaking us. Jesus never leaving us or forsaking us. Uh, and so if that's true, then why would God forsake or leave Jesus? It does not seem consistent, especially when, uh, as Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Whatever you've seen me doing, the Father does also, and so on, okay? Uh, and so, uh, how can Jesus be forsaken by God, but uh, God will never forsake or leave us? Wouldn't it raise some concern in our minds if we say, well, if God could forsake Jesus, maybe that means God could forsake us. Uh, and so, I really like your thinking on this, okay? Uh, now, I I I've written... Uh, on this before, on this question before, 
And I will link to this in the notes for this podcast study. But you can find it. Just go to Google and search uh, Redeeming God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Type that in and it'll come up as the first search result on Google there. But here's a brief summary of what I wrote in that article a couple of years back. All right. Jesus came to this earth to fully identify with us as humans, right? I mean, there's lots of reasons Jesus came to earth, but that's one of them, to, to, to fully identify with us. Uh, however, how could he have done this if he did not sin, right? We know that Jesus did not sin. He was sinless. He was perfect. And yet, sin is not—it's it, part of who we are as humans. I mean, it's not who God made us to be. It's— it's sort of an infection, a disease, in a sense, in us. But still, the presence of sin in our lives is part of who we are, part of our human experience. And so if Jesus came to this earth to fully identify with us as humans, and yet he never felt what we felt as sinful human beings, then can we say that Jesus fully experienced what it means to be human? I mean, how can Jesus identify with us if he never experienced the pain and the frustration and the fear, the turmoil that is caused in our hearts and our minds because of sin. Okay? I think that on the cross, Jesus did take our sin upon himself, or at least in a sense that he, he felt what we felt because of sin. And I don't know quite exactly how it all worked. With the, Did the sin get poured upon him? Again, people have tried to describe this different ways. But uh, I do believe that it is there when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That What he's doing there is he is expressing the turmoil, the fear, and the desperation, the pain, the frustration that we humans often feel, sometimes on a daily basis, because of sin in our lives. All right, the pain and anguish we feel every day, Jesus finally felt that on the cross. Okay, so he's, he's not being forsaken by God on the cross, just as you and I are not being forsaken, ever. Does God ever forsake us? No, he does not. But we often feel forsaken, don't we? Because of sin. And that is what Jesus is expressing on the cross. It is our pain, our fear, our hurt, our despair that is finally be given, being given a voice. It is, it is the cry of God fully entering into our broken condition, fully experiencing the sense of separation from God that sin causes. I mean, you think about it. Jesus always was in perfect union with God. We don't even know what that means because none of us as humans have ever felt it. But Jesus had been that way for eternity and for his entire life as a human. But now on the cross, that sense of oneness and unity and closeness with God was severed. And Jesus felt what we feel. And so he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, you know, we often feel, if you're like me, you sin or you're having a bad day or it's difficulty at work or with your marriage or with your kids or who knows what, you just struggle with depression, I don't know, and you feel like God is ignoring you, like he has abandoned you, like he's not hearing your prayers, that he doesn't care about you, that he doesn't love you. That is what Jesus finally felt on the cross, why he cried out, why have you forsaken me? Now, if we know in our brains, if we're good theologians, that God does hear us, that he hasn't abandoned us, that he does love us, 
that he has forgiven us, but we don't feel that way. And it's a struggle between what we feel and what we know Scripture teaches to be true. So on the cross, Jesus was expressing what he felt, what we often feel, because of how we live in this world with sin. So on the cross, when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was giving voice to our pain and anguish. And here's the encouraging thing from this. Okay, When you feel abandoned by God, Just remember, Jesus knows what that feels like. When you feel forsaken, neglected, forgotten, overlooked, as we often do, remember that on the cross, Jesus knows what that feels like. If you ever feel like God has turned his back on you, Jesus knows what that feels like. Okay, so the the question from the the listener, from Joan, was... uh, How can Jesus say, God, why have you forsaken me, if God didn't actually forsake him? Well, this is the feeling that Jesus experienced, and it's a feeling that we all experience. Uh, And though we may feel forsaken, we are not forsaken any more than Jesus was forsaken. Was Jesus truly forsaken by God? No, he was not. If Jesus was truly forsaken by God, then Jesus wouldn't have been raised from the dead. But he was raised from the dead, proving that God had not forsaken Jesus. And since God has not forsaken Jesus, God also has not and will not ever forsake you and me. The presence of sin in our life makes us feel like we're forsaken, but we really aren't. God has not abandoned us, forgotten us, left us alone to suffer and die. God is right there with you all the time, loving you, holding you, and crying with you over the pain and suffering you experience. Because in Jesus, God experienced that also. Right? So it's sin that makes us feel separated from God. And that feeling is what Jesus expressed on the cross. It's one reason Jesus went to the cross, to bear our sin and take it away into death, so that we can see that God has not left us, has not abandoned us, and has not forsaken us. Okay, now as this whole issue of sacrifice and and the Old Testament sacrifices, I'm not going to address that, Joan, because I deal with it at great length in my book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. Also on this issue of the suffering of Jesus on the cross, I deal with that in my book, The Atonement of God. It's really a a look at what what is revealed to us, 10 things that are revealed to us through the death of Jesus on the cross, so that we wouldn't have learned any other way. Anyway, I, I do recommend those books, The Atonement of God, and nothing but the blood of Jesus. It, it sort of uh, deals with this topic a little bit more. Okay, so Joan, thank you so much for sending that question in. I hope that my brief answer there was a little bit helpful. Let's go on to our study of Ephesians 1, 9-13. Okay, so we're looking at Ephesians 1, 9-13 today. And this is, again, a lot of what is in these verses is a, is a repeat, a repetition of what Paul has already said. So I'm going to go through them fairly quickly. But let's begin in verse 9, because there are a few things right at the start here that Paul has not addressed previously. The text says, And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Ephesians 1 verses 9 and 10 there. 
So uh, basically in Ephesians 9, Paul says that for, for many years, for thousands of years, God had a mystery. He had a secret, uh, which everybody longed to look, look into. Paul writes about this elsewhere, but nobody really knew. There were hints and hints of it all over in the Hebrew Scriptures, but nobody really had the full revelation until Jesus came, and then really until Jesus died on the cross. And now that mystery has been revealed to us. That's what Paul is writing about here in verse 9. And again, he'll write about it elsewhere in Ephesians, and Paul writes about it in some of his other books as well, some of his other letters. Now, the fact that it was a mystery sort of confuses some people. They think, well, if it's a mystery, that means it's hard to understand you know, oh, the mystery of God, you know, we shouldn't ask, we shouldn't ask, because that's not what Paul is talking about. It was hard to understand for people who didn't know what Jesus was going to come to do, uh, or how he was going to do it. Uh, it. It simply means that it was something that was previously unknown. There were clues and hints about the mystery all over the Hebrew Scriptures, but God didn't make it plain, hadn't make it clear until Jesus came. And Paul says it was a mystery of his will, what God was going to do, what his plans were for the world. He also says he purposed this in Jesus Christ. So it was, it was a plan for Jesus to reveal this. God was going to reveal this in Christ when he came. Okay, And it wouldn't be revealed until the times have reached their fulfillment. That's not the end of times in the future. That's the times and the fulfillment, which is the time when Jesus came. The fulfillment of time at Jesus came. Okay, So what is the mystery? that God purposed in Jesus Christ when the times have reached their fulfillment. What is it? Well, it's that God was going to unite all people on the earth into one family in Jesus Christ. Um, God's goal uh, was to bring all things in heaven and on earth, as we see in, in, in 10 there, verse 10, under one head, Jesus Christ. What is this? What is Paul talking about? He's talking about the church. The church is the mystery of God's plan for the world. Prior to Jesus coming, in fact, even many times today, as we just talked about with Hamas and Israel a few minutes ago, people groups were at war with one another. One group hated another because of their religion, because of their skin color, because maybe one is richer, one is poor, who knows what the reasons might be. But in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, we see this mystery, this plan, this purpose of God in Jesus Christ to bring all the people together into one family, which is the church. So we'll read later, we'll see later in Ephesians chapter 2, how there's, uh, and Paul writes about in Galatians as well and other places, that there's no more Greek or Jew or slave or, or master or Gentile, okay? We're all one in Jesus Christ. This was the mystery that, that, Paul, that, that God put into effect through Jesus Christ and Jesus' uh, ministry, and especially his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay, Now, we're going to talk a lot more about this in Ephesians chapter 2. A lot of people think Ephesians chapter 2 is about how to receive eternal life. By grace you have been saved through faith. Really, when we'll get into Ephesians chapter 2, guess what it's really about? It's about how to bring peace between warring people groups. It's a very shocking chapter when we discover it or read it and study properly in its context. But we'll be talking a lot more about that. And the key to bringing peace, one of the keys to bringing peace between warring people groups, like uh, Israel and Hamas, is for the church to lead the way in this regard, through forgiveness, through reconciliation. And the church really is the key to peace in the world believe it or not. Sadly, the church has often led to more violence and bloodshed in the world than peace. But when the church is properly functioning as God wants and desires, then the church is the key to world peace. 
That's what Ephesians 2 will be about, and that's what Paul is sort of foreshadowing, giving a foreshadowing here uh, in Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10. Okay, so we'll be talking a lot more about that. Let's move on. Ephesians 1, 11, in him we were also made heirs, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. All right, here's this idea of inheritance, being made heirs, this concept of predestination, okay, with the purpose of his will. We talked about all this before. Remember, predestination was not to eternal life, uh, but it's to service and to a purpose in God's will. Same with election. And adoption as sons, it's not God choosing... um, He's not mentioning adoption here, but predestination is to adoption of sons, to being made heirs. All of this we've talked about in previous studies, so I encourage you, just go back and uh, listen to those studies. Verse 12, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Again, this is a a repetition of, of things that Paul has already talked about. All of this is for God's glory, for God's purposes, uh, so that um, we, the Christians, might bring praise to his glory as we as we lead the world in showing them how to live. Okay, And then finally, the first part of Ephesians 1.13 sort of provides a summary of all of this, uh, all the riches that we have in, in Jesus Christ. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And I'm going to pick up the rest of verse 13 next time, so we'll just stop there for now. But uh, the word of truth is uh, here equated with the gospel of your salvation. And this is simply the message of how to live right in this world. Okay, now, if, you're, if you've been around church and Christianity for a while, you might have heard lots of people use the word saved or salvation. And usually those words are used in reference to, you know, when were you saved? Tell us about your salvation. And the, 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 the concept, the idea is, when using saved and salvation, that you're supposed to talk about how you were converted, your conversion experience, how you went from being, you know, converted from a child of darkness into a child of light, how you went from an unbeliever to becoming a believer, how you received eternal life, basically. Guess what? The word salvation is never used that way in the Bible. All right? And uh, in the Bible, the word salvation... It means deliverance. And what you're supposed to do when you see the word salvation in the Bible is stop and substitute in the word deliver, deliverance, delivered, something like that. And then look in the context to see what the kind of deliverance is in view. And when you do that, you will discover that we can be delivered from false teaching. We can be delivered from hurting ourselves or other people. We can be delivered from uh, losing reward when we stand before Jesus in heaven. We can be delivered from sickness, you know, the or or a premature death. The disciples are on the boat. Storm comes up. Jesus is sleeping. They say, "Lord, save us!" So they're saying, "Lord, teach us how to go to heaven so we can be with you forever." No, they're saying, "Lord, we don't want to drown. Deliver us from drowning." Okay, so um, I cover this a lot, or at least I will, in my Gospel Dictionary Online course. It's one of the fifty-two words I'm looking at in that course. So if you're part of the discipleship group. That lesson's not yet available, but it will be. I'm making progress. So I hope to add another lesson or two this week. We'll see if I can get those recorded and published. But here in Ephesians 1.13 then, so what we need to do is stop and, and see that he mentions salvation, the gospel of your salvation. We're going to put in the word deliverance, the gospel of your deliverance, and then look in the context to find what kind of deliverance is in view. And what is in the context? This reference about the mystery. What mystery? 
that 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 as we'll see later in Ephesians, further context, Ephesians chapter two, as Paul develops this concept more, saved is there as mentioned in in Ephesians two eight and nine. By grace you have been saved. Okay, what's the saved? What's the deliverance there? This conflict, this war, this hatred that exists between different people groups on planet Earth. That's what we've been saved from. That's the good news of your salvation in Ephesians. In Ephesians, the word salvation does not refer to eternal life and going to heaven when you die. Okay, Instead, it refers to being liberated from the sin that destroys our relationships, destroys other people, that leads to death. Okay, And Paul is saying that we've now been saved from that through Jesus Christ. We have been shown how to live a different way so that we can live in peace with one another and peace with God. And that's what the word salvation means in Ephesians. It's not talking about where we go when we die, but rather how to live our lives right now so that we can be at peace with one another. Okay, And we'll talk about this again a lot more in Ephesians chapter 2 when we get there. It's very similar, by the way, to the kingdom of God. Jesus often talked about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not heaven, also. Uh, kingdom of heaven is not heaven. The kingdom of heaven is God's rule and reign in our life now. So Jesus often talked about the, the, the kingdom of God. Paul's uh, preferred term for the kingdom of God is salvation. So where Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, Paul talks about salvation. And in both cases, they're not referring to life after death, but rather how to live our life here and now, on this earth, before death, okay? And uh, so the kingdom of God and salvation carry on into eternal life as well, but, but they're not, they're not uh, synonyms for eternal life. So um, it, it's about God's rule and reign in our life now and spreading God's rule and reign over the earth so that other people can experience it as well. I said earlier that the church is the, is the key to world peace. And how do we do that? By living in light of the kingdom of God now, by living in light of the word of truth, the gospel of our deliverance, the news about how to be delivered from sin and bondage and slavery and death and violence that has plagued us since the beginning of the world. That's what Paul is hinting at here, and he will explain it much more in Ephesians chapter 2 when we get there. Okay, now, you might say, Jeremy, this seems like an impossible task. How can I get along with people who want to kill me? How, right? That would be the question for the Jewish people. How can I get along for people who I feel have wronged me and stolen my land? That would be the question for Palestinians, for Hamas. It's impossible. They want to kill me. They stole my land. I just can't let that go. It's impossible. Right. Maybe on a smaller scale, you have people at work or your neighbors or even someone in your family that you just cannot get along with. You cannot let it go. What they did wrong with you. They want to hurt you and harm you. Okay. How can you get along with them? It's impossible. Well, there's another blessing that Paul is about to talk about, and it's in the second half of verse 13, but we will pick up with that next time when we look, uh, when, we, when we consider the rest of Ephesians 1.13. So make sure you join us next week when we pick up there. Thank you for joining me today. Hope you found this study insightful and helpful. And again, if you have questions or comments on this, just go to redeeminggod.com slash Ephesians 1, 9 through 13, and you will find the, the notes and the manuscript for this podcast and can leave your question or comment down in the comment section at the bottom. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week when we pick back up with Ephesians 1, 13.